Hello and welcome to the podcast of Vineyard Church here in Maryville, Tennessee. We post our Sunday messages here each week, as well as our conversations episodes, which include interviews, special announcements, and in-depth teaching. You can visit vineyardchurch.us to learn more about us or to access the audio archive. You can also subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple, or Google Podcasts. And now, here's the episode. We're in uh, the series called Empowered. We actually wrap it up next week. Just a, a reminder, this series we're doing leading up to Pentecost Sunday, which has been celebrated uh, and for hundreds and hundreds of years around the globe by Christians. And we celebrate essentially the beginning of the church when the Holy Spirit came in Acts chapter 2 and initiated. Uh, people often see Pentecost as the baptism of the church itself and the launching of uh, the ministry that God would do throughout the world through his people. And so it's a really significant day. And a whole bunch of vineyard churches actually are, are doing this series, now different messages um, each uh, at each place, but are doing this series together leading up to next week as we celebrate Pentecost together. Really important day in the life of uh, the church, capital C, and our church, little c. Um, that's next week uh, as we wrap up this series. Really important. Hope that you will uh, come to that. Uh, we've been talking about throughout this the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. And um, I want us to lay a bit of a foundation today that I think will, I think will be helpful to us. Um, I want to acknowledge that um, this is true in all churches. I think it's maybe even ticked up an e- a bit even more true in our church, which is that uh, we come from a really diverse set of sort of spiritual backgrounds. Um, there are a lot of people in our church who come from a, a wide variety of different denominations, different theological streams, and have sort of kind of found their way here over time. Um, I, they, these have always been brackish waters here at the Vineyard, if you know what I mean by that. Um, and that can be challenging, I acknowledge, if we're kind of coming from different maybe perspectives on things. That can be really challenging. I just want to acknowledge how beautiful and good that is, by the way. That if together we understand we are on a foundation of orthodoxy, which means we believe the stuff that the church has believed for hundreds and hundreds of years. And on that foundation, we can understand things a little bit differently. What that means is we have a lot to teach from each other. That can be really healthy and beautiful and good. I call it theological diversity. And it's really good to have in the life of a church. But there's also some challenges that come with that. And um, so here's one of them. The reality is if you're sitting next to someone, there's a, there's a good chance that your default setting for the way that you think about the Holy Spirit is different than theirs. Your understanding of like how big a part of your life the Holy Spirit should be or could be, there's a good chance it's like a lot different, maybe profoundly different than the person next to you. And also for lots of folks in the life of this church, um, like you've never been connected to a church family before, or you don't really have a, you're like, what's this talk of a background? I don't have one. Um, and so now the conversation of the Holy Spirit may just seem really new, probably really kind of weird too. So I just want to acknowledge all of those things. But with that in mind, um, no matter the background, I think that we can all benefit from having sort of a broad-based understanding of what most Christians think about when they think about the Holy Spirit. And we have sort of the, what are the main camps? Not so, hear me, not so that we can win an argument, that's not the goal, but so that we can understand the vantage points of others and hopefully stay more connected and not less, and also so that you can know where you land and, and why you land. 
So that's the goal for today. We're going to try to lay a foundation and understand with broad strokes, what does the church, capital C, tend to believe about the Holy Spirit, and then where do we sort of fit in that? That's where we're headed. Let me start with a story. If you've been around this church for long, this is a familiar story. This is kind of our Genesis story, really. This is kind of, if we go all the way, how far back can we look and say, well, that felt like the start of this church? I think this is as far back as I can trace it. Uh, I was 15 years old. I was in Stan Painter's geometry class as a sophomore at William Blunt High School, one mile away from here, directly across the street from where the new building's going to be. Isn't it cool to see some video of the new building? It's cool. Some of you are like, what video? You should come to church on time. It's at the beginning. It's at the beginning this week. I mean, who knows next week? But that's where it is this week. It's at the beginning. You don't want to miss it. <laughs> anyway, right across the street from where the new building's going in. And um, I was sitting in that class not thinking about geometry. Uh, I was grieving something, actually. Um, I was thinking about my friends, looking around the class, and uh, most of my friends were Christians. Um, actually, to be more specific, most of my friends were Baptists. Okay. You notice that? Uh, my dad used to say growing up, he said, there are more Baptists around here than there are people. <laughs> he used to say one time he said that, and I said, well, Dad, what does it make us? And he said, Christians, which is totally a joke, by the way. Uh, don't worry. If you're like, hey, no, 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 like, we love us some Baptists. If your background's Baptist, that's such a good thing, so pro-Baptist. But anyway, I, really, I just wanted to put in, like, a lame dad joke just to know that it's generational. I come by it honestly, okay? Anyway, uh, so lots of Baptists. So I'm looking around, I'm like, okay, I'm Pentecostal. I was raised Pentecostal. And I'm going, I, in Pentecostal churches, there's a lot of emphasis on the gifts and the work and the power of the Holy Spirit. And not so much in like, like all my friends' churches. And I was thinking about that. And I was thinking about how theologically, I know it's weird for, how 15, for a 15-year-old to think this way, but this is where I was at. This is where I was at. Theologically, if we were to sort of like map out my beliefs as Pentecostal, their beliefs as a Baptist or any sort of mainline Bible-believing congreg- congregation, okay, and we sort of saw how much those circles overlapped, then it's like, we believe almost exactly entirely the same stuff. Like, we're just, it's the same, except just around the fringes, just on the edges, there's stuff that's just a little bit different, particularly around the Holy Spirit. But big picture, it's like, this is the same, and yet, we acted as if we were practicing different religions entirely. And beyond that, there's sort of this, there's a little bit of like side-eyed mistrust between those two camps. Like, for example, I'll, I'll tell you, this is true. I have, I have more than one person, listen, more than one of my friends sent me down and say, Aaron, I've been to your church. Ooh. Uh, and uh, anyway, my pastor taught that if you speak in tongues, that's probably because you're demon-possessed. So I'm pretty worried about you. Are you okay? That happened to me more than once. No, just to be fair, it was twice. But that's a lot. That's a lot for that to happen. Two times. People said, I'm worried about you. But it was, all, it was a two-way street, too, because kind of in my Pentecostal church, nobody said this stuff out loud, but it was kind of in the water where we go, I mean, do these other people, do they even believe in the Holy Spirit? Like, 
Do they even, or is their trinity actually the Father, the Son, and the Holy Bible? Is that actually their trinity and they don't even believe it? Do, and, and also, what do they do for fun over there? Because I know what we do for fun. What did, like, what is even, and so there's sort of this side eye, like, are you missing the forest for the trees thing? Again, not spoken, but kind of in the water. And there was this sort of mistrust and this kind of fear of people who were like the same in almost every conceivable way. And I was grieving. I was heartbroken. I remember trying not to cry in geometry because of that. And that's when I decided, and I think of the Lord's direction. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go and learn some stuff. And one day I'm going to come back to my hometown. And I'm going to start a church that represents a third way. That represents the middle ground that will defend the nominations to one another. The problem is I had, I had no idea what, what that third option even was. I just knew there had to be one. All right, so that story represents the three broad categories that most Christians fall into. The first group is how most of my friends thought about the Holy Spirit growing up. The second group is how I thought about it growing up. And the third group is that option that I was looking for, but I didn't know existed yet. Y'all still with me? Okay, we're going to go through the three. First, let's start with uh, what most of my friends heard growing up. And what most of my friends heard growing up, in really wonderful churches, by the way, um, is that at some point, many of the miraculous works of the Holy Spirit, just, they stopped happening. So things like prophecy, signs and wonders, uh, healing, some of the more demonstrative gifts of the Holy Spirit, those things stopped happening, and it wasn't an accident, that was all by God's design. And uh, some in that group would say, well, the Holy Spirit empowering people in those ways that was limited to the apostles or the, the disciples who, who, who uh, knew Jesus personally and walked and talked with him, okay? And so those, that, all that miraculous stuff, that stopped when the last apostle died, which was the apostle John, by the way. And others kind of in that camp would see it a little bit differently and they would say, no, actually, those things stopped when the Bible was finished being put together. And once the Bible had been written and gathered together and we had the Bible... That's when those things stopped. We needed those sort of supernatural gifts until we had the completed Bible. But now that we have them, we don't need them. And so that's when the gifts like that stopped. Either way, the idea is that those things did happen. They don't happen anymore because they have, important word here, they have ceased. Okay? And that's where the sort of fancy title or the label for this group, a lot of theological words today, but we'll try to explain them as we go. For this group, they're called cessationists. Okay, that's a mouthful. Cessationists. Um, from the word cease. So, with that in mind, real quick, a lot of times, not always, uh, but a lot of times, this cessationist perspective is part of a much broader, think really big, a much broader framework for understanding the whole Bible. And that framework is, is called dispensationalism. Another really big word you can impress your friends with at lunch. Uh, dispensationalism. Um, meaning that, hearing that word, dispensationalism, the word dispense, meaning that God dispenses his grace, his mercy to us at different times, like throughout history, in different ways. So at different ages, and God dispenses this and that. Okay, so basically you could think of, think of literally soap dispensers. Okay, so we're dispensing. So think of a soap dispenser, and specifically, let's for fun... Think about the really finicky soap dispensers that we have here at the Maryville Vineyard. Oh, you've noticed. Yeah, me too. 
it's, in my mind, it's 40% of why we're moving. Just I'm, I'm, get out of here. <laughs> you go, you go, you wash your hands, or you're about to wash your hands, and you need some soap, and then you, and then you reach out for some, as if offering a prayer. <laughs> what do you have for me? About 30% of the time, for me at least, maybe 40, it just works. Great. It feels like a, like a miracle. It works. More often, it doesn't work. And so I have to get real spiritual about it. You know? And then it doesn't work. And then I give up. And you know what happens 100% of the time? When I do this, there it goes. There's the soap dispenser. And then I look down, and there's like a big pile of soap on the floor. And I was like, it's not just me. It's you guys, too. That's happening to everybody, right? So, anyway... It's, not, it's like you're trying to perform a miracle. I think if aliens were looking, they would be like, what they do in the big room is worship, but that's worship too somehow. Um, anyway, a soap dispenser. A dispensationalist view would say that at different times in history, there's different stuff in the dispenser. The cartridge gets switched so that when we go to God, there are different blessings on offer. So if we look to the Old Testament, it's like, God, we need help. And so God gave the age of kings, and kings were the blessings that were on offer. And then after that, the judges, and then after that, the prophets, and so on. The different ways that God sort of helped us out, the ways in which he dispensed what he had for us. Now the idea is that after Jesus, something called the apostolic age began, and that's when God was dispensing the miraculous gifts, the supernatural stuff, more directly, okay? That's when, in the apostolic age, if you went like this, something miraculous might come out, okay? But then, the church age began, and that's the age we're in now, and in that age, God speaks to us either exclusively or almost exclusively through the Bible, okay? That's sort of the cessationist, dispensational view. So, okay, those gifts are no longer been being dispensed, or being dispensed, the cartridge changed. Now, I'm about to explain to you why I don't agree with that perspective. But, let me say this first and don't miss it. The entire church, whole church, capital C, including all of us, has been profoundly and deeply blessed by people who hold this view. And I think the reason for that is simple. I might be over, like, oversimplifying it, but I think there's a simple reason for that. This is why. When your vantage point is... If I'm going to hear from God, then I'm going to hear from the Bible. And that's all I've got. Then what comes from that is this wonderful, sharp focus on the scriptures. Beautiful things come from that. Some, some of the very best scholarship in church history, some of the best theological thinking has come from this camp. And I think it's because they're so laser focused. They're so zeroed in on the word of God because that is how God's blessings are on offer to us. And here's the thing, whether you land in that camp or not, we need that focus. We need to make sure that we're giving God's word. The last service missed it. I'm going to finish this sentence. I expect an amen. Okay, it's, that came out too heavy-handed. There's a wonderful opportunity for an amen. Whether you land in this camp or not, we need that focus to make sure that we're giving God's word the highest possible authority. Yeah, you nailed it. I mean, I had to. Anyway. 
And that is including, and hear me, that's perhaps especially a higher authority than any word of wisdom or word of knowledge or vision or dream or prophecy that we may or may not have received from God. It's all subject to the scriptures. It's all subject to the scriptures. Okay, so the main text for the cessationist is uh, 1 Corinthians 13. Let me read it to you quickly. I think you'll see where they're coming from pretty quickly. Verse 8, love never ends. Good news, in case you were wondering. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. Okay, I hear where they're coming from. As for tongues, they will cease. That's the word, cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. That means sort of miraculous knowledge. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. Verse 12, for now we see only a reflection, as in a mirror, but then face to face, as in face to face with God. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully as I am fully known. Now, the key phrase here is when the perfect comes. Cessationists see the perfect as the Bible. And they go, well, now we have the Bible, and now those things end. All right, fair enough. The problem is, it says that when the perfect comes, we will know fully. That now we know in part, but then we will know fully. The partial will go away. Full clarity will come. And guys, I have a Bible. I've got several, actually. But this hasn't happened for me. I read it, too. <laughs> this hasn't, and then look around, folks. This hasn't happened. We do not yet, as verse 12 says, see God face to face. It's still a reflection. Our perspective is still partial. No one here fully knows. In other words, the perfect hasn't yet come. So what is it then? It's much more likely that this is talking about the return of Christ, who is perfect. <laughs> and when he comes, he makes all things new, right? New heavens, new earth. And then we really do see fully and perfectly. And we see God face to face, not as, in a, as a reflection, but face to face. And then logically, think about it, then there will be no more need for miraculous gifts to hear from God. Someone say, wait a minute, I have a prophetic word. And we're like, so what? I just talked to him. <laughs> no, it's about this. Oh, no, I'm just going to go ask him directly right now. So you don't, you don't need it. You don't need the partial. Those things then come to an end. And the miraculous, like, oh, I have a gift of healing in the new earth. It's like, well, not useful. Nobody's sick. Everything's better now. So at that point... It's just not needed. So it, that's, I mean, it fits the context really well. So there's a the problem there interpretively. And then, of course, you, there's sort of this historic reality with cessationism that God just has been speaking and healing and moving miraculously all throughout the history of the church. And so they're left with this sort of untenable position of having to deny or somehow explain away all of that. And that's, that's, that's a tough go. All right, so that's the first position. The second common view is uh, Pentecostalism. Another really impressive big word. Um, Pentecostals said I was raised Pentecostal. Pentecostals believe that God is still moving in all the ways. 
um, and that it is all still on the table for us. All right? Uh, all the gifts, the healing, the miracles, all that stuff. Now, not, at least to my mind, not at all surprisingly to me, Pentecostalism is growing like a wildfire. It is exploding with growth throughout the world. If you want to say in one word, what is the future of the church? The future of the church is Pentecostal. The growth of the Pentecostal movement within the church is the most rapid growth at any point in the history of the Christian church, including the apostolic age, the first few hundred years of Christendom. Like, we've never seen anything like this before, ever. And it's because, in my view, to put it very simply, it's because the Pentecostals are still using all the tools in their tool belts. It's like I've been saying the last few weeks, guys, we, we really do need the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. He really has asked us to do a bunch of things that we are incapable of doing without the Holy Spirit. And so they're doing that, and the growth is unprecedented. I was raised Pentecostal. I have a deep affinity uh, and appreciation for this group. Um, they're hard to summarize, though, because, hear me, get, some, get this, there are several hundred million Pentecostals in the world. Soon, they will be more than half of the church. Soon, there will be over a billion Pentecostals. So, said all that to say, it's not just one thing. It's not a monolith. There's all sorts of flavors of Pentecostals who are out there. But we still, for this sake, have to kind of paint with broad brushes. So anyway, be sure to keep that in mind because I'm going to say, eh, it tends to be like that. And you're like, oh, no, it's not my experience. It may not be. It really may not be. Anyway, there are aspects, as much affection as I have for it, there are aspects of Pentecostalism that end up kind of getting plagued by some specific problems. And those problems are, at least in my view, uh, because the theology is incomplete. So we'll explain that in a bit. But first of all, there's a tendency to have an and this is what the Bible nerds call it, more impressive terminology for you. It's okay if you don't remember it. There's a tendency to have an over-realized eschatology. That's a mouthful. An over-realized eschatology. Eschatology is the study of end times. It's the end of the world stuff. Over-realized is like it's all kind of here now. It's an over-realized eschatology. So to put it this way, it means a perspective that too much of the awesome future glory that's coming to us when there's a new heaven and a new earth too much of it is actually here now, like we're living in that reality now. Sometimes this is called the kingdom now perspective. Um, parts of it are called triumphalism, and you kind of maybe can fill in some blanks about what that might mean. The idea being that all the power, all the authority, all the glory, all the healing of the future kingdom of God is here now. We just have to claim it. We have to, to, to take hold of it. I want to be clear about this. There is like a whole big stack of verses, like not one or two, a great big stack of verses that say we should lay hold of the promises that God has for us now. Um, but that has to be balanced with the reality that the kingdom of God is both already here and also not yet fully here. More on that in a minute. Um, and so what happens is that ends up placing, just think about it here logically, stay with me, that ends up placing an enormous amount of pressure on people. Because if it's all here now and we just have to claim it or take hold of it or reach out and grab it, 
If it's all here now and we really need a healing or a blessing or a miracle or a word, then logically, if you really need it and it's all here now and you don't get it, that's your fault. You see it? All authority has been given to us. And if all authority has been given us, then any shortcoming is actually on our shoulders. So, for example, in Pentecostal circles, they, they see healing as being part of the atonement. It's okay if that sentence doesn't mean anything to you. Um, it's from this verse that says that, and it's true, great verse in Scripture, where it says about Jesus that, that by his stripes we are healed, right? Through the suffering of the cross, we are healed. So the Pentecostals say, okay, they are healed. And healed is past tense. And are is right now. We are right now healed. It's been given to us. It's already done. It's already finished. And so if you need a healing, and you want a healing, and it's already been given to us, but you don't get healed, or for some reason that doesn't happen, then logically you or somebody who prayed for you messed up. Maybe you didn't have enough faith. Maybe you didn't pray long enough or hard enough. Maybe you didn't pray the right words. Maybe you got sin in your life. Maybe the person praying for you didn't pray long enough or hard enough or they didn't have enough faith. They didn't have sin in their life. Some sort of calculation means it's not the Lord's will being done. It's it's on you. Now, again, different flavors of Pentecostalism. That's not all Pentecostals. In fact, that was flat out. That was not my experience growing up in a Pentecostal church. It wasn't. But it's a really common problem. Also, and this is big, um, Pentecostals speak about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is a real thing, and it's described several times in the Bible directly. Um, but Pentecostals say that speaking in tongues, is the, which is one of the spiritual gifts, um, speaking in tongues, if you've done that, that's the only way to know for sure that you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. It's the only real evidence. Now, to be fair, that's not out of nowhere. There are a bunch of times in the Bible where people are baptized in the Holy Spirit, and most of the time, the text says explicitly that they spoke in tongues. If you don't know what I'm talking about, let me refer to you to the book of Acts. Several times it says explicitly they spoke in tongues. And then sometimes, a a minority of the times, it doesn't say explicitly that they spoke in tongues, but something observable was happening because people looking around said, oh, something's happening over there, but it doesn't say what. And so then the Pentecostals take... It's not a huge leap, but they they take a leap. They take a leap and then say, okay, that means everybody who's baptized in the Holy Spirit has to speak in tongues. And if you haven't spoken tongues, then you've not been baptized in the Holy Spirit. And so you've kind of got the haves and the have-nots. The the baptized folks and the not-baptized folks, the spirit-baptized folks and the not, and it creates this two-tiered, unintentional, this two-tiered thing. It's a step too far to say that's a requirement or that's the initial evidence. And so anyway, out of that, there's this huge emphasis that's placed specifically on the gift of tongues. And again, it puts a lot of pressure on people, especially, imagine this, people who may not have that spiritual gift. The Bible says repeatedly, the Holy Spirit alone disperses the spiritual gift. You get this one, you get that one, you get these, you get those. And so it's not up to us, okay? Uh, But so it, it tweaks that a bit. And what ends up happening is it makes a gift, the gift of tongues, which is a beautiful thing, by the way. But the Apostle Paul said, this is the least of the spiritual gifts. He says it explicitly. 
but it makes it central and it elevates it so that it feels like the greatest of the spiritual gifts. When what Paul actually said is prophecy is the greatest of the spiritual gifts, and so we should earnestly seek to do that. Okay, so that's part of what happens. So there's also this insistence that, again, it's all there for us, and we just have to take hold of it. And what that has done, again, unintentionally, has led to a bit of an atmosphere or a culture of hype or sensationalism. And it's actually, it's hopeful. There's this feeling that if we just try hard enough, or if we are sincere enough, or we want it badly enough, we can actually make God move. Pentecostals don't say that, by the way. Uh, but it ends up in the water. So what happens is, um, Pentecostals have then this, hear me, wonderful sense of expectation. I mean, they're holding their breath at any second. The, the power of God could come. This tremendous faith that God can and God will move. Okay? But unintentionally, it leaves people feeling, again, all the pressure goes on you. It, it leaves people feeling that God's work is dependent upon us. And what we do, and it's actually totally dependent upon the will of God and the move of his Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? Y'all still with me? Sort of. Okay. That brings us to a third view. This third view would be our understanding here at the vineyard, uh, sometimes called an empowered view. So here's how this works. We believe in all of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, all of the stuff. It's an ongoing thing. All the tools in the tool belt. God moves in all the ways through all the gifts. But... Rather than a perspective that insists it's all available to us now, which is more of a Pentecostal perspective, we would balance that with what I believe is a fuller understanding, stay with me on this, on Jesus' teaching on the kingdom of God. Okay? We level with you. The stuff Jesus said about the kingdom of God is confusing. It's like, what? Okay, and here's why. Jesus would often teach that the kingdom of God is here right now. He's like, kingdom of God is here right now. You're standing in it. It's a present reality. Okay. Sometimes he would say, the kingdom's not here, but it could come in any second. Like, any second. The storm clouds have gathered. It could rain at any second. Go ahead, hold your breath. It's fine. At any second, it's coming. And then other times, people would say, when's the kingdom of God coming? And he'd go, ah, it's an end of the world thing. Like all the way down the corridors of history at the end of the end, that's when the kingdom comes. And people are like, wait, what? Because it sounds like those statements are completely at odds with one another. So, historically, different parts, this, because that's so confusing, here's what's happening, very important. Different parts of the church have picked one of those sort of streams of what Jesus said and made that primary and kind of forgot about the other stuff because we don't have a category for it. So cessationists would be like, yeah, Jesus said the kingdom's in the future. It's in the future. You know, that's when God comes back, all that stuff happens and then we're all good. The Pentecostals would be more like, well, Jesus said the kingdom is here now, so it's here now, so it's here now. <laughs> that's their vantage point. Our perspective, and this school is a rapidly growing thing. It's now very common. This used to be unique to the vineyard. Now it's not, and this is great. It's not even close to unique in the vineyard. The vast majority of people who understand it this way are not vineyard people because it's so grown, grown, grown very rapidly. But it's basically this. Hold on. Jesus wasn't confused. He wasn't contradicting himself. He meant every word that he said. His kingdom is here now. The kingdom of God is a future reality. And... 
That kingdom of God future can break in at any moment. So here's, here's how this works. Stay with me. Through the ministry, the death and resurrection of Jesus, the kingdom of God has come. You can think of it this way. Jesus came and he planted his flag and he declared the world to be his once again. Mine. The kingdom has come. But the kingdom of God has not yet fully come. That doesn't happen until Christ returns. Okay? So we're kind of in this in-between. We call this the already and the not yet. Not very clever, I know. Just already, not yet. Okay. The kingdom of God has already come. It has not yet come in full. And because God has already, stay with me, because he's already established his kingdom here, he can break in at any time and give us a taste of what it will be like when his kingdom, of, when his kingdom comes in full. Okay? So what does that mean? That's what's happening when we pray for people and they are healed. Or someone hears from God. Or God somehow intervenes miraculously in our lives. Well, what's happening? What's happening is God's kingdom has already come. come it's established it here. It's not yet coming full. And what God is doing in those moments is he's giving us an early installment of the future. And it's breaking into the present. It's, it's, an early, it's, a, it's a down payment. It's a foreshadow of what is coming when God comes and renews all things. I'm going to give you a little taste of what's coming. That's what happens when we hear from the Lord. He moves miraculously. So, does that make sense? Okay. So, we can think of it this way. When our cessationist brothers and sisters, when they think of God's miraculous power, they're looking ahead to Christ's return. Like, oh, that's at the end when the kingdom comes, return of Christ. Our Pentecostal brothers and sisters, they see that power more like an ever-flowing stream. And we can just, just dip right into that anytime. Just grab yourself a scoop anytime you want. While we in the vineyard, and lots of other groups do, we see it more like uh, well, what the word spirit in the Bible literally means, which is wind. Sometimes the wind blows. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it blows a little, sometimes it blows a lot, sometimes it's still. And we're just people, we cannot make the wind blow, but we can ask for it to blow. He's asked us to ask for it to blow, and we can seek it. We're told again and again to seek it. And to use the language we've used the last several weeks, we can make sure that our sails are up on our little boats so that when the wind blows, we are ready to catch on to whatever it is that God is doing, however he is moving. And I think that that's what we see Jesus doing all throughout his ministry on the earth. I'm almost done here, but let me, one, one quick verse. 1 John five nineteen, Jesus is explaining what his ministry, like how he does it. He said this, I tell you the truth, the Son himself, the Son can do nothing by himself. He does only what he sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, the Son does also. He said, I'm I'm looking around, I'm seeing what the Father is doing, and I'm going to join him in that. I'm partnering with what the Lord is doing. And that's our example. It's an example to us. We don't make things happen, but just like Jesus, we can look for how God is moving, join in on what he is already doing. You could call this joining God in the renewal of all things. So our posture is more like constantly 
keeping a finger to the wind, uh, looking to see where it's blowing and in what direction so that we can partner with what the Lord is doing and catch on to whatever it is that God has for us. It's not up to us. It's what God's doing. We're partnering with Him. I hope that makes sense. Quickly, um, there are weaknesses. There are potential weaknesses to this. I think this is the correct perspective. There are weaknesses to it. Let's talk about it. Let's see it. There are pitfalls. Let's see them. The pitfall is we can avoid the weaknesses of the other two perspectives. No, we don't want to do it that way. You don't want to do it that way. But we can also fail to take hold of the strengths of either side. I see that happening a lot with people who have this vantage point. Well, what are the strengths of either side? Well, unlike the cessationists, we could fail to look enough to Scripture and to the authority of Scripture. And we might find ourselves saying, oh, I don't know what to do. I need to know what to do. Lord, I need a word. I need a dream. I need a vision. I need a prophecy. I need wisdom. Lord, speak to me in somehow, in some way. And that's great that we should seek those things. But we might do that to the exclusion of this really important book on the shelf collecting dust that has the answers written in black and white for us. Okay? That's one mistake. Or we could find ourselves, again, just kind of being middling. We could find ourselves failing to really seek the power of God like our Pentecostal friends do. To say, well, I don't know, man. The wind may blow. It may not. What are we going to do? You know? And then if you do that, you end up ignoring the whole stacks of ways that the Bible literally implores us to seek the Spirit in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit came. We're going to talk about it next week. It's a mighty wind. And no one made it blow. But don't miss the story. It came after days of all 120 of them being obedient to Jesus' command to go and seek the gift of the Holy Spirit that they might be empowered. And a lot of people just skip that step and go, I don't know, I guess I don't have any gifts. Not true. If we fail to seek the Lord's empowering presence, we become, think about it, we become functional cessationists. I have a theological category for God. I'm not going to freak out if somebody says they had a prophetic word. Okay, i got a category for that. But functionally, I'm going to continue to live as a cessationist because I don't have any real expectation that the Holy Spirit would come, and so I'm not really seeking Him. Those are the things, the pitfalls we've got we to look to.